So tonight we're going to continue on in uh, this series going through Peter's letters. We've been traversing through First uh, Peter so far. This is uh, part number eight of this first letter of the Apostle Peter. And uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll be able to finish out this first letter and then get into Second Peter, which is a much shorter letter. Uh, but I've really enjoyed uh, sort of pausing and just sitting and letting Peter's words kind of soak in. Uh, because as I've shared, and this is probably a thing that you're or tired of me repeating, I love the Apostle Peter. I love his story. I love his how his his arc in the scriptures, if you're just looking at it from a narrative arc, so to speak, he starts as this very headstrong man who is very sure of himself, very sure of his ways, such as why he's always speaking before he thinks and sort of getting himself into trouble in that way. And then he has this enormous crisis of faith as Jesus is crucified. And yet, in the midst of all of that aftermath, Math of the crucifixion, Peter is a changed man. In all that headstrong ways that he had before, is now channeled by the Spirit into a powerful preacher of the gospel. Such as why, if you read the first several chapters of the book of Acts, he is preaching to thousands. And as it says in first or in Acts chapter two, that it was added unto them three thousand souls, <laughs> three thousand souls through one sermon. A powerful uh, expositor of the word, preacher of the gospel, preacher of Jesus, I should say. And I love his story. Uh, I think we also like Peter because we know a lot about him. I've said that on several instances. But Peter is one, if you just take a bird's eye view of the Gospels, uh, he appears in a lot of the stories that we commonly are associating with Jesus and his ministry. If you look at them, he's there. He's, he's, he's um, privileged to be a witness to many of the most uh, intimate moments of Jesus' life. Uh, he's, we almost know more about him than any other character in the scriptures, uh, which is fascinating to me. Uh, because we don't just know his strengths. Actually, more than that, we know a lot of his weaknesses. I think that's what makes him so endearing. What endears me to Peter is that we know firsthand all of his, his faults and his fallacies and his weaknesses. All the blemishes that spot his record. And yet God uses this man in such a mighty, mighty way. And his, his letters only further this fact as he articulates the faith that he has come to believe in such a passionate way. Uh, what I find in these letters is, again, Peter is not writing some ivory tower uh, theoretical Christian doctrine. He's writing faith that he has found to be so real, so palpable, so, uh, so almost tangible that he has found it to just uh, infuse him with life and faith and hope. This isn't something that we just spout off as inspiration. He believes this and he is seeking to impart this belief to these churches because he has found it to be real. This born again life that he's talking about is something that he was hoping and trying and by the power of the spirit conveying to these churches and such as what we are doing even now, 2,000 odd years later, conveying the belief that Peter had from his, these firsthand experiences. 
Um, and a theme appears if you read chapters 3 and 4. So as we've been going through it, we took a big chunk out of uh, chapters 2 and 3. And we looked at what it means to be subjected to other people in our spheres of Christian service. What does that look like? What does that mean? What, how should we approach that in all these different spheres of government, relationships, and uh, all, all the other spheres that he covers there in chapters 2 and 3? Then we looked at the, the, another sphere of subjection that we don't often think about at the end of chapter 3, which is the, the sphere of subjection in, uh, in submitting to our baptism. And we talked about what that means and why it's so important to identify uh, our baptism with death and resurrection and why that should be something that we should champion. Remember your baptism, that moment when Jesus or where you are identifying with Jesus, the one who died your death and resurrected back to life as it says in Romans 6 that with him like him we are now buried and resurrected again by faith but there's a section in the middle that we skipped over and only because I wanted to tie it in with what appears in chapters 4 so in verse 13 down through 17 he begins to uh, harp on this subject so to speak that will continue on through the end of chapter 4 and it can be noticed through the repetition of a single word notice verse 14 but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake happy are ye notice verse 17 of chapter 3 for it is better if the will of god be so that ye suffer for well-doing then for evil-doing. Notice verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Jump down to verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Notice verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And notice the last verse. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Very obviously, you can see here the theme of these two chapters as it comes to the fore is the theme of suffering. In fact, all eight instances of of that word there, suffer, come from the same word. This is on his mind. This is on Peter's mind. It means everywhere to undergo affliction. (laughs) It seems kind uh, kind of superfluous to define suffering. We all know what that means. I didn't necessarily plan to preach in the morning service this morning on suffering and then to repeat it again tonight. But obviously the Spirit has something to say to us. And clearly Peter is desirous that these churches understand suffering in a very profound way. That he wants them to make sense of it. Why they are having to undergo this affliction. They've been born again unto a lively hope as it says in chapter 1 verse 3. So why are we who've been born again burdened with this suffering in this life? I think that's very relevant for us as well. As we undergo suffering all the moments of our lives. 
Peter's task is obvious. He is so burdened that they would be encouraged in their affliction. But he is also careful, if you read all the verses that we're going to cover in chapters 3 and 4, to uh, ensure and to actually give them a, a slightly different type of encouragement. Because he says, basically, your suffering is not going to go away. Which is a very different approach to uh, trying to encourage someone through suffering. He doesn't tell them it's going to be taken away by the God that they have put their trust in. He actually never tells them that. He never promises these churches that their condition is going to change. That that the circumstances are going to get better. That their suffering is going to come to an end. Actually, what he is everywhere trying to show them is that actually what is going to change is their perspective on suffering. How they view it. How they look at it. How they sort of understand it and take it in as it's occurring to them. I think this is so relevant for us. Because Peter's striving to show that suffering, undergoing affliction, struggling through events and circumstances that are out of our control. That's the hallmark of Christian faith and service. It's what it means to be a Christian. As he has everywhere uh, sort of iterated in in these chapters so far, he has called these churches what? Sojourners and pilgrims. You are uh, those who are born again unto a lively hope, chapter 1, verse 3. You are pilgrims, sojourners. You are foreigners in a world that is not your home. You uh, belong to a better kingdom. You have a new and a true and a better authority. That makes you automatically at opposition with what the world has to say, with what the world has to promote. Opposition means friction. Friction means conflict. Conflict means suffering. Identifying with Jesus in your baptism means you will suffer. He is, you can see Peter's thought process. As he is trying to get in the minds of these churches just what it entails when they are saying, I believe in Jesus and I want to be baptized. It's not a light matter. It's not just an emotional moment. They are identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection and suffering. Suffering for us happens after baptism. Remember, I just think of those verses. Uh, I think it's in Mark 2 or 3. It's in the early chapters of Mark when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking about the baptism with which he has to be baptized. He was talking about his sufferings. He was talking about his afflictions. It's so fascinating to me that Jesus linked together his sufferings with being baptized into them. Because the sufferings that were foreign to him. I think of that verse from Isaiah 53 where it talks about, um, well, let me, let me see if I can find it so I just don't mess up the, the quote. <laughs> I tend to do that. So Isaiah 53, I come back to this chapter so often because it's so extremely it's profound and powerful. Uh, Isaiah 53, I think it's verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken of God, uh, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. 
That's not the verse I'm looking for. Um, anyways, there's a verse in here that talks about how he had to be almost introduced to our sorrows. All the things that he's talking about there in verses 4 through 7. These are things that he had to be introduced to. He's unfamiliar with them in his own nature. And yet, when he comes to earth as a man, he gets introduced to our grief and our suffering and our sorrow and our loss. This is what Jesus meant when he said, this is the baptism with which he had to be baptized. We too, in a small way, When we identify with Jesus in our baptism, we too are identifying with a sufferer, with the man of sorrows himself. So what I want to do is look at chapters 3 and chapters 4 and just look at what Peter says regarding the Christian's experience of suffering and why it's so profound that we see it as a hallmark of our faith and and sort of a hallmark of our service as we are called to serve God himself. So first of all, in chapter 3, in verses 13 down through 17, I think we see here the Christian's power in suffering. The Christian's power in suffering. Notice verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Here I think Peter gives perhaps the greatest assurance that you and I can have in the midst of suffering. Namely, he, he, he is so bold in his declaration that, that the, those who are suffering... Do not have uh, the power taken from them. They are not powerless. Notice again verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? I love how he makes mention here. Peter does. That the suffering is coming sort of at the hands of other people. Don't be afraid of them. They will try to harm you. But do not be afraid of their terror, he says. Do not be afraid of their terror. Neither be troubled by them at the end of verse 14. Notice, what is he trying to do here? He's reminding these churches that those who are afflicting them, those who are oppressing them, that, that, that whoever is causing the terror and the trouble in their lives don't, doesn't hold the power over them. Their power belongs with God himself. With Jesus himself, the suffering servant who, de- who died and rose again for their sakes. Don't be afraid. Of what they can do to your body. When your faith and your soul is entrusted to the one who judges both the quick and the dead. As we learn elsewhere from scripture. This is the great reminder that the apostle gives these churches and us. 
That those who oppress us are actually powerless over us because no matter what circumstance you or I endure, what, no matter what uh, event or what, no matter what sort of suffering uh, we uh, have to incur in this life, it is from the Lord. As he says there, it, you'll notice this phrase in chapters 3 and chapters 4, the will of God. Notice verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation of Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. There's nothing that can come about that can shake you out of what God is working in you. And the significance of these words behind, behind Peter's words here, especially note verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. So that word sanctify is a, is a powerful word. It means to, to venerate, to consecrate, or to sort of dedicate you notice what he's saying here. He is saying, dedicate whatever you are enduring as though it is coming from the Lord God. As a blessed opportunity to show off whose you are. We don't, I don't often think about that. That as he says here, my conscience, my conversation, as he says in verse 16, in suffering proves whose I am. It proves the Lord who is over and has reign over my heart and soul and life. How I respond, how I handle myself in suffering proves who has control and reign over my soul. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Consider it a blessed opportunity for you to be able to show off to others how incredibly powerful your God is. Yes, even in the crucible of suffering. This is Peter's charge. That for the church, it's your blessed power, the express power of those who are Jesus' followers to count their suffering as a happy opportunity to venerate the Lord God who is residing and dwelling in their hearts and souls. Notice. Notice that's what he says there. Verse 14. But and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are you. Happy are you. Can you think of a, a, a more absurd counsel than to consider it a, a happy moment to be able to suffer for the sake of Christ? It literally means a fortunate, blessed thing to occur. That's Peter's words. That's what Peter is, is trying to evoke. The apostle advises these churches to consider their suffering as their happy fortune. Because only those who have been born again unto a lively hope can deed, sort of, sort of depower what those who are afflicting them have power over them. Because God's power is in you. God's power is yours. Yes, even while you're suffering. So we see here. In the face of all of these circumstances that threaten to derail our faith, to, to, that threaten to overthrow uh, what we believe in, Paul's words here are so incredibly powerful that we are secure in God's grip of us. That's the power that we have. 
His power for us. The Christian's power in suffering. Notice number two. Jump down to chapter four, verses one through six. I think we see here the Christian's purpose through suffering. The Christian's purpose through suffering. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves, uh, excuse me, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, Excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and the abominable idolatries, where they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in flesh, to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit." So here, I think we see the Christian's purpose through suffering. So, uh, namely, I think what Peter is suggesting is, 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 or I should say this, that I love how he is pointing his readers in these, these churches back to Christ. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about uh, the Christian's role in suffering. And he is always pointing them back to, to Christ. Such as what he did in verse 18 of chapter 3. Talking about all of these sufferings that Jesus endured. Were sufferings that, uh, that was the just for the unjust. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Jump back to verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The same point is meant in both places. That there's this suffering that Jesus endures. The suffering for us in the flesh was a substitutionary suffering. It was a suffering that he incurred in the place of us. Again, hearkening back to Isaiah 53, it wasn't suffering that he deserved. It wasn't suffering that came about, that came about because of something that he incurred, that he had to go through. It was suffering that he took on himself. He was justly uh, undeserving of any amount of affliction that he eventually felt in this life. And yet he took it on for you and for me. To show us the glory of this gospel he was coming to establish. This way of salvation that he was coming to inaugurate and to initiate and to institute. This is Jesus When he was mocked and when he was maligned, when he endured all of that undue affliction for you and for me and for our benefit, he was thinking of you. He was a man of sorrows, a man of sorrows for you and for me. It wasn't for uh, for anyone's benefit other than yours. All of Jesus's suffering was undeserved. It was unfair. He didn't earn any of it. And this is what, what, what Peter is here talking about here in these verses. This incredible moment 
When Jesus underwent all this affliction for us. And notice what he says there again back in verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourselves, furnish. It has, it is, is meant to evoke the idea of sort of preparing yourself for war as if you are getting on all of your weaponry, arming yourself, making sure your, uh, your weapons are ready for the battle that is about to come. And he says, furnish yourselves with the mind of Christ as you approach suffering. This is how you are to approach it. That we, like Jesus, are to commit ourselves to doing the will of the Father. John 6, 38, Jesus prays that, that he, he declares that boldly, that he hasn't come to do his own will. He hasn't come to do what he, uh, he desired. He has come to do of the will of the one who has sent him. He's come to do the will of his father. And such is this same mind to be in us. That we ought to do the will of our father. Our father in heaven. Why? Because we've been born again unto a lively hope. Jesus' willingness to suffer for the good of others encourages us to do the same. Why? Because if you notice what Peter's doing here, he is drawing attention to the fact that there is nothing that brings more glory to the gospel than for those who are willing to suffer for its sake. Even at their own expense. Even when they are ridiculed for it, as it says in verse 4, when it talks about how they're going to think it's strange, they're going to think it's so odd, they're going to think it's so shocking when you don't run like they do, when you don't run in the same circles as they do. You see, how you and I handle suffering is indicative of what we think about God. And it's suggestive of what we desire our neighbors to see in us. You see... God's will for us as the church is to live in the holiness that God's Son has gifted to us in the gospel of grace. And there's no more incredible crucible for that to be lived out than to to be lived out in the moments of suffering that you and I often endure. See what it does? The way we handle suffering, the way we handle it in this life points to the one that we say that we believe. It points back to the one that we say, well, I'm identifying with you in my baptism. And when that moment of heat comes, when that moment of trial comes about, when there's that, that, that incredible event where we could uh, lose all faith. Because of the pressure of those we are doing life with. As he says again. Notice verse 4. He says they're going to think it's strange. That you're not running with them. To the same excess of riot. Speaking evil of you. They're going to slander you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to be scandalized. By your faith. He's preparing the church. If you want to point the world to Jesus. Point the world to Jesus in the way that you handle suffering. I can't think of any more, I think, poignant message than that. I've reiterated this with several of you that are even here this night. I don't know how those who don't know Jesus as their Savior handle the moments of suffering in this life. 
I don't know how they cope. I don't know how they move on. When there's things that come about in our lives that don't make sense, that that don't feel as though they are coming from God's hands, and yet we we are told everywhere to have faith, to believe, and yet what I've seen everywhere through the countless funerals I've had to do this year, that those who believe in Jesus have a peace that passes all understanding. And that's not cliche, that's truth, that's grace. Because there's something powerful in the way that the church handles suffering. Why? Because we can consider it our joy to suffer for Jesus' sake. It's the hallmark of our faith. It reveals the redemption that's being worked out in our souls. It's the purpose of suffering. The Christian's power in suffering is Jesus' power in you. The Christian's purpose through suffering is to point to that one who has born you again into this lively hope. But lastly and quickly, notice that those verses that we read at the beginning of the service, verses 12 through 19, I think we see here lastly, the Christian's privilege of suffering. The Christian's privilege of suffering. Because Peter is closing this chapter by returning to this theme of suffering that he's been hinting at in these two chapters. And actually, he uses a lot of language that he had actually hinted at back in chapter 1. But I think here in verse 12 of chapter 4, he articulates, I think, one of the most staggering examples of encouragement from a preacher. You have these churches... They are dislodged from their former lives. They've committed themselves to the way of Jesus. They are enduring suffering at the hands of those who are opposing them. And what does he say? Verse 12, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing has happened unto you. Think it not strange. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked when this affliction comes upon you. Can you think of anything that sounds more opposite of what the world would have us to believe? Suffering always catches us off guard. Suffering always comes when we least expect it. And that we can't plan for it. What Peter is here saying, don't be shaken by it. As though some strange thing, as though some otherworldly thing has come about. You've pledged your lives to Jesus. You've given him your allegiance. This is the natural byproduct of faith. And it is our privilege to suffer for his name. Notice again verse 12. And uh, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning this fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Incredible image. Incredible truth. That this, that this suffering that comes about, it is our privilege, it is our joy that we get to suffer and partake and share in the same sufferings that our Savior, Jesus Christ himself, was tried with. 
And notice again, verse 12, because he's using that same wording that he used back in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. When he talks about there the fiery trial, it's meant to evoke again, to reiterate the same thing that we talked about in chapter 1, that picture of a blacksmith, of, of a metallurgist. Who is putting alloy, an alloyed metal so to speak, or a metal he wants to prove. He wants to prove its genuineness, its, its value, its worth. He's putting it in a furnace that is, that is burning at extremely hot temperatures. And as he puts in that alloy and he brings it out, all of the impurities are burnt away. All of the things that make it not what it is, that, that, that make it less value, valuable, are burnt off. And that fiery trial, that ordeal, that seems so incredibly uh, vexing and trying, that seems so incredibly, uh, so tumultuous, it's the way in which our faith is proved. Just as a metal is put into the furnace and has its worth proven, so it is with our faith. This is God's means for proving the genuineness of our faith. What we say we believe, when we say we are identifying with Christ, we can best believe that we are going to be tried to have that faith proven. Martin Luther the great reformer, he says this about this text, that God throws us into the midst of the fire that is into suffering, shame, and calamity so that we may become more and more purified until we die. That's his work on us. It is our privilege then to be bold in suffering. Why? It is our seeding joy to partake in the sufferings that Christ himself suffered with. Why? Because we can know that there is a God. There is a Savior who is there beside us. Who is purifying us more and more into his image. The more we endure suffering. That's why it's our privilege. It's our joy. To share in his afflictions. To be associated with this one who suffers. Did you notice that? Notice, um, notice verse 14 of chapter 4. He says, If ye be reproached, if uh, as ridiculed, reviled for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Same phrase back from chapter 3. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God on this behalf. It is your glory to glorify God in the midst of suffering. To be associated with a suffering Savior. I think about this. And these words, when he says, be not ashamed, I immediately think of that moment. That was perhaps most present in Peter's mind when Peter didn't even want to be associated with Jesus at all. Peter's denial. <laughs> at the end of Mark chapter 14, it uses similar language in the sense that Peter didn't just want to not know Jesus. He didn't want to even be associated with Jesus at all. 
I don't want to share with that guy who's being tried and being beaten and being mocked and being accused of blasphemy and all those things. I don't want to share in his sufferings. (laughs) And here he says, when he talks about in um, verse 13, to rejoice that you can be a partaker A sharer, a one who associates with Christ in his suffering. It is your joy to be associated with the man of sorrows. This is Peter's new testimony. (laughs) Peter's new testimony is now that it is my privilege, it is my power, it is my purpose to share with Jesus in suffering. He says this. (laughs) I'm not making this up. Acts chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, just write this reference down. Peter says this. Acts 5, 41, listen to Peter's testimony. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That is, the name of Jesus. They were threatened not to preach Jesus, and they did it anyway. And they said, it is our joy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. It is my glory, it is my privilege to be a sharer in this suffering. And then he closes back in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. With the most wonderful promise to anyone who is suffering. And why it is our privilege to suffer in this way for the name uh, name of God. It's because we are being kept, as it says there, by a faithful creator. When you are suffering, as we noted this morning, you suffer. Not as though uh, that that God has turned a blind eye to your uh, your, uh, circumstance. He hasn't turned a deaf ear to all of the things that you're enduring. You have a faithful creator who is watching over you, who has proven you, who is working his will in you. Yes, even through suffering. And nothing can, nothing can deter that work. Nothing can delay it. Nothing can stop it. What God wills to happen will happen. And the creator of all things... He's the one to whom your soul is committed. And he is the one who is keeping your soul. He's the one who is guarding it. Notice verse 19 again. He says, Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Commit the keeping. A phrase which means to deposit or entrust. As though you're making a deposit at the bank. This is the securest deposit you could ever make. To entrust your soul to the one who keeps all things flowing together according to his will. Who keeps all of the worlds and the universes and the stars and the galaxies and every life of every single uh, organism that has ever been in this creation. He is the one who is keeping it all in the balance and you're entrusting your soul to that person. This faithful creator. The one who holds the universe in the palms of his hands. That's the best investment you could ever make. So just why he says. Commit the keeping of your soul to that one. 
That one who's watching over you. That one who is keeping you. That one who has done everything to save you. And he's not going to let anything uh, uh, take you away from him. When you're suffering, you're identifying with Christ. And it is not a light matter, it is a serious matter. And yet it is our power, our purpose, and our privilege to share in these sufferings for the sake of Christ and the good of the gospel and the glory of the church. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray.